1: Uh, Immigrants have not changed. They have the same need, the same humanity. What has changed are the laws. There are no lines to get into, so that creates unlawful immigration. And unlawful immigration leads to vulnerability and invisibility for immigrants. And so that's really the issue. I found out in my research that 98% of the people who came through Ellis Island were admitted to the U.S. Basically, if you had lice or, you know, a disease... That was evident. You weren't allowed to enter, but 98%. So basically, if you could get your body on the ship, you were in. And so that has changed dramatically, even though right now we are experiencing the greatest refugee crisis that we know of in recorded history. Mm-hmm. It was, it's greater even than after World War II. I mean, it's, it's terrible. And only 4% of refugees are ever resettled.
0: Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I am your lonely host, John Williamson. I am here sitting in the studio all by my lonesome because Adam, uh, my my dear friend, is out there somewhere traveling and helping people with rare diseases. So um, he's doing good work. So he's out there for a uh, for good reason. But um, uh, I bring you today a new episode. Um, unfortunately, Adam could be a part of it, but we had the next best thing. Uh, our dear friend Katie Herder, um, whose name might sound familiar to you if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, uh, she pinch hit for Adam at the end of 2018, at the end of last year. I believe it was December, uh, but she she helped fill in and co-host on our episode on purity culture, um, lending a very needed um, and important female perspective. Um, on on that whole movement. So, um, she's amazing and was gracious enough to, uh, sit in with me again, uh, on this episode. Um, another important topic, uh, to me personally, I think it's been weighing on me, uh, quite a bit over the last several years as, um, uh, we've had, uh, some major issues with our, our immigration policies and, um, with families at the border and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. So, um, Is an interesting topic that I I found myself very ignorant on, and so it was very eye-opening to come across this book um, that I found uh, profound and educational and inspiring uh, because there are some aspects, some stories that I grew up with. Uh, that she really tells from a different perspective and uh, especially from the perspective of someone who herself uh, immigrated uh, to the United States from Guatemala as a child. Um, you know, there was a lot for me to learn. There's a lot, I, I would assume, for a lot of folks out there listening um, uh, to take away from this. So uh, so anyway, it's a great book. Uh, it, it, again, it's called The God Who Sees Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to, to Belong, uh, published through Herald Press, came out in May of this year. Fantastic! Uh, we'll have all of her links to her social media uh, in the show notes, so you can find her on Twitter, Instagram, uh, and all that good stuff. Um, she also has a couple blogs that you can check out where she writes uh, more frequently. But she's a sought after speaker. Um, she writes on a whole uh, host of different topics. Like I said, she's a she's a fantastic theologian. Um, she's contributed to publications like Sojourners, Christianity Today, The Christian Century, uh, and, and a ton of other publications. Um, and she's got a cat named Scully that I I regret not asking about. I'm, I'm hoping that that just means she's a giant X-Files fan like I am. So who knows? Um, maybe next time we have her on, I'll ask her, but, um, but again, I, I hope you guys take away, uh, from this conversation, um, as much as we took away, uh, just being a part of it. Um, like I said, it's just, uh, something that, you know, is, is happening in, in real time right now. Um, there's a very real crisis at our borders, um, you know, no matter which side you come from, I, I think um, the Bible is very pretty clear on how we should be treating our, our um, immigrant brothers and sisters. So, um, great episode. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, also, uh, music on this episode, Jordy Searcy. Uh, you know, he's a, a wonderful musician, young dude. I can say that now, I'm 40. So, um, <laughs> But a young guy, uh, talented musician, writes some really profound uh, stuff. Um, And if his name sounds familiar, if you happen to watch The Voice, uh, he was featured on The Voice and uh, um, was gracious enough to let us use some of his music for this episode. So um, in particular, the one at the very beginning, uh, and um, we'll play the full track at the end, um, is just uh, really hits the nail on the head. So uh, go out and support him follow him on social media uh, tell him we sent you and uh, um, you know support him by his music um, you can find it everywhere good music's found of course iTunes Spotify Apple Music uh, all the usual suspects so um, so again hope you guys love this episode as much as we love doing it uh, thank you guys so much for being patient with us uh, and hanging in there I know we haven't had a ton of content out this year um we're working on it uh life is getting slowing down a little bit uh but we are uh putting in the time uh to get some episodes done and in the can um and like i said we've got a two-parter coming in november um that will kind of explain some of the the cast at the beginning part of our year but um Really important episodes for us And then we've got a couple really cool ones um, On the topic of grief Heading into the holidays So um, we're going to end the year strong And then uh, we'll kick off 2020 And try to get back in the flow of things But uh, until then uh, Here is our guest this week Uh, Without further ado Karen Freakin' Gonzalez If you really want to pray to
2: him you're never sure he's listening Cause who could forgive what you did last night I'm so sorry For what you've heard the broken broken points that's Silly
0: words Well, welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. It's weird for me to say because that's usually not my part, but um, Adam is not here today, unfortunately, uh, but we have our very capable... Uh, uh, what would we call you? Like a pitch hitter, uh, pinch pinch hitter, right? Yeah. Uh, Co-host Katie, who you may remember from the end of last year. So, Um, so Katie is here with us. And also more importantly, we have a very special guest with us today. Uh, Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, Karen Gonzalez.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Well, well, thanks for being here. Um, like I said, you know, before we start recording, we are really excited to have you on to talk about a topic that um, is really important to us, um, specifically, you know, um, in terms of the political times and, and the climate that we find ourselves in uh, currently. And uh, so so tell the listeners for those who aren't familiar with maybe um, your background and what you do, um, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. So I am an immigrant myself from Guatemala, so I write, About immigration from a very personal perspective because it is, in fact, my story. I migrated to the U.S. from Guatemala when I was nine years old, and I I would say that my story of immigration is very closely tied to my story of faith. I was born into the Catholic Church and um, just explored faith throughout my life and became a serious follower of Jesus through Inner Varsity Christian Fellowship, which is a parachurch ministry on college campuses, and and after that I went overseas and served as a you know as a Christian service worker missionary, and then I eventually went to seminary um, also, and then I currently work for an organization that serves immigrants and refugees. All our work in the U.S. is with the foreign born. We do refugee resettlement. And immigrant Legal Services, and we work with um, survivors of trafficking who are also you know, foreign born, which is the majority of them anyway in the United States. And that organization is called World Relief. And this week, we had some really sad news because we had to close one of our offices because refugee resettlement is down mm-hmm. to a trickle under the current presidential administration. Yeah. But that is a bit about my story and... I guess work is so closely connected to that that it's hard for that
0: not to come out too. Well, um, one of the main reasons we wanted to have you on is because you, you have this great book out. Um, it's called the God who sees immigrants, the Bible and the journey to belong. Um, tell us a little bit about that. And, and obviously one of the things that on the deconstructionist podcast that we noticed is that at least to us anyway, this, this immigration situation seems like a pretty obvious Thing when you, when you really read the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, but the entire Bible really says, has a lot to say about immigration, how we should treat immigrants. And so um, tell us the inspiration behind what, what led you to write this book.
1: So, when I started working at World Relief, I started as a church mobilizer, which means I would go to churches in the Baltimore, D.C. area where I live. And I would um, talk to them about God's heart for immigrants. And ma- the majority of them were evangelical churches, but I also worked with a lot of mainlines because it is, you know, the kind of the Northeast, so there's a lot of mainline churches. And um, when I was doing that, I read a lot of books on this subject, of course, because I would preach and teach and talk about um, the Bible and what the Bible says. And I started to notice that most of the texts written— um, about immigration from a biblical perspective were all written by white people. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. This is not a, an indictment of that at all. I think there's a, a place for that for sure. But there's also a place for us as immigrants to be telling our own stories. And that's what I wasn't seeing. And, you know, I went to see Hamilton and <laughs> <laughs> that was my ultimate inspiration because I was like, this is so oh, interesting. Awesome. Yeah, because you have this story, right, of an immigrant founding father, right, from a different social class, different family, different country. And uh, the the story of the founding of America from his perspective is so different from the one that I was taught. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this is a perspective that's needed. And so I began praying and thinking about writing the book, but that's where it came from.
3: That's so awesome. That's really exciting. So what was the reception at these churches that you brought your message of reaching out and, and touching immigrant lives um, through through World Relief? What was the the welcome that you got
1: there? So I will tell you that I found not a big difference between mainline churches and evangelical churches. I Ooh. think that um, what I did find, however, is that mainline church pastors, and these would be your Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, were much more welcoming. The pastors themselves were easier to access and talk to than evangelical pastors. But in terms of the congregations, I didn't fe- find that much difference at all. In fact, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There are a lot of people whose view of immigration is more informed by their peers, by the media, by their family than it is by— the words of Jesus, frankly. And so in terms of that, I didn't find that much difference. The access was just different because, you know, there's this whole thing in the evangelical church, you know, the Billy Graham rule about not meeting alone with women. And <laughs> mm,
2: yeah.
1: so, so it makes it harder for women to have access, right, to, to pastors. But, uh-huh. but, but in fact, the questions that I received, because I would always do um, a sermon or a presentation, depending on the church, and then the questions that I received were similar, very similar questions, very similar attitudes, um, very similar biases, you know, against uh, immigrants and immigration in general. So it was very interesting from that perspective. And it's been true with the colleagues that I had at the time as well. That's what they found. And In fact, the work that World Relief does, we do in partnership with mostly evangelical church volunteers. And so they help with the resettlement of refugees. They help with English classes, job services, all of the things that refugees need to learn as they come into this new country, we do with the help of volunteers. And so... Don't get me wrong. I think there is a political sort of evangelical church out there, you know, what you hear under people like Jerry Falwell and Franklin Graham, that definitely exists. But I didn't find that they were any less welcoming than non-evangelical
0: churches. That's great. Um, One of the things I want to definitely touch on, and and, and you really dive into this in the book, and there are some really kind of stunning statistics in here. Um, I thought like just really eye opening for me, and and you know I acknowledged before I even began reading the book that there's there's inevitably a lot I don't even know about you know how immigration works within the United States, and I knew it was difficult based on some friends who had who had come over from Australia and, and had kind of recounted their experience with it and just how difficult and expensive and time consuming it was um, from their end, so. You know, they were always quick to say, Hey, you have no idea how much more difficult it must be if you come into the country with like very little money. Um so Uh I wonder if you could talk a little bit about because I think this is something that people don't often think about. Um especially when, you know, we get into these debates um from from the comfort of our homes here where we don't have to worry about gang violence and, and drug wars and that sort of thing. But One of the things you point out is something like 60% of immigrant women crossing the border in the United States are sexually assaulted. And additionally, some organizations have said that as high as 80% of trafficking victims are foreign-born women and girls.
1: Yeah, that's correct. And it's it's a statistic I've seen in many different places. And that one in particular came from Amnesty International. But it's very common. And when I worked in the immigration uh, legal clinic at World Relief there wasn't a day that went by that I didn't meet a woman who had been a victim of sexual, who had not been a victim of sexual assault. It was, uh, it's, it's terrible. uh, The things that are happening um, to women in particular, they just face a vulnerability that men don't. And the real crisis at the border is the vulnerability of immigrant women. They experience so much danger entering the U S and then once they're here, there's very poor conditions in the US. And so yeah. it's yeah, it's really really terrible. It's it's in fact so bad that even Catholic groups, you know, who are famously not in favor of birth control, will distribute birth control so that women don't become pregnant as a result of the rapes.
0: Oh my that gosh. That is
3: so telling.
1: Yeah, it's really shocking.
0: So one of the things I think that would be um a good thing to clarify, I guess, uh, is you kind of touch on this in the book too. And I love for you to talk about this is the, the reasons behind, uh, which these, these families in most cases are risking life and limb to come over to the United States. Um, because, you know, a lot of cases I, I read a, um, uh, an article not too long ago, actually about families who were lucky enough to have the means to do so that we're trying to cross over in the United States uh, from Mexico in these, in these border cities that had become absolute war zones between rival drug gangs, which ironically uh, were, were basically came about as a result of the, the drug addiction in the United States and the, and the demand for, for drugs. So in, mm-hmm. in a sense, like we caused this problem and then, you know, you have these families who, again, you know, if they have the means to leave and pack up and leave are, are, are risking their lives just to keep their families safe, to keep their children safe, um, and, and these again are things that we don't. I mean, I, I we talked to Adam, and I talked about this in our prior podcast where we talked about, well, how did I win the human lottery? You know, I was I was born uh, a heterosexual white male in the 20th century in the United States of America to a middle class family who are educated, and I got to go to university, but completely random chance. You know, I didn't. You know, I didn't choose. Uh, for that to happen, and so I can't, you know, uh, I can't imagine what it must be like to have a family in a place where there's a war going on, like you talk about in the book um, uh, in, in Guatemala, uh, or you know, these drug wars happening in Mexico, um, and having to make that decision to try to to take my entire family, uproot them from the culture that I grew up with and that I know and love, and you know, and go into a completely foreign land. So. What are some of the reasons that you've seen working with this organization? Why do people, why are they risking life and limb to come over?
1: Well, you know, there's a Somali poet, Warsan Shire who has this uh, great quote from one of her poems. She says, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark.
2: Ugh!
1: wow. <laughs> and I think it's really powerful because if you think about it, many of the immigrants I talked about in my book, none of them. Dreamed of leaving home, and most immigrants today, including me, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Most immigrants are not sitting around in their countries thinking about the American dream because when you leave, it's extremely traumatic. You leave pieces of yourself behind, your home, your comfort, your heart language, your extended family, your very sense of self is taken from you, and you have to start all over again, almost like a child in a new country. And it's a deeply painful, and like I said, very traumatic experience. And immigrants embark on that journey, either for economic reasons, if you want to feed your family, Mm -hmm. or have a need to protect their lives and those of the people that they love. Um, So the primary reasons that people migrate to the US are to work. To reunite their families, meaning dad left a long time ago and is working in the U.S. and mom and the kids are in another country, right? Mm-hmm. And then also to flee persecution and violence. So what we're seeing right now, the humanitarian crisis at the border, is asylum seekers. And I want to define that because I'm not sure if people know what an asylum is what asylum is or what asylum seeker is. But these are people who flee their home country due to war or violence. Mm -hmm. And they present themselves at a port of entry to the U S and they apply for asylum. And the application is based on persecution for their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. So for example, if you are, uh, if you were, uh, transgender person and you were fleeing your country that would put you in a membership of a social group that's a social group Mm. because lgbtq people suffer greatly around the world some of the most vulnerable immigrants yeah so asylum seekers um which is a part of our law to apply for asylum you just apply when you come to the border and you're usually paroled into the country which means you can go and be with your relatives, because the applications, if you are found to have a credible fear and you apply, the applications take about two years to adjudicate. So it's a long time.
3: Yeah.
1: And uh, less than 10% of asylum applications are successful. Wow. Less than That's 10%. Staggering. So this is why it's so terrible, because it's part of we're denying people something that is a part of our own law, that they can apply for asylum. You know, the president essentially wants to block people from something that is American law. And then even in that, the people who have applied before he took office, only 10% are successful. It's so difficult to prove persecution because we're talking about people who are poor. We're talking about people who have, you know, just fled. A lot of them fled because they were, their lives were in danger. And so they just, they didn't take time to sit, to sit around and organize You know, I've seen asylum applications be successful, but it's typically like a journalist from another country who has all this proof, right? Yeah. Of uh, hate mail and things that they wrote. And so it's just, it's a very heartbreaking situation um, at the border because of, of what's happening and the way our own laws are being violated by our leaders.
0: So one of the things I would love for you to add on to that is <clears throat> there's another law that I, I was not familiar with at all, I'll be honest, um, and I'm trying to find it in my notes here. But um, it was like a three-by-ten law or something like like that. Does that? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes, the three- and ten-year bar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a statute that came, um, came under Bill Clinton. He's the one that actually put this statute as part of immigration law. And basically it says that if you have been in the United States unlawfully, so you were not admitted, and you have accumulated more than six months of unlawful presence, you are barred from the country for three years if you apply. If you apply. So let's say, for example, that I, I crossed the border you know, um, as an undocumented person and I marry a U.S. citizen. So I would be able to adjust my status, right? Because now I'm married to a U.S. citizen. But if I had acquired six months of unlawful presence, I have to go back to my country for three years before I can apply. And so I, I w- either my spouse would come with me, right? Or he and I would just be separated for three years. Mm. The, the other thing, uh, the other one is 10 years. So if you if you acquire a year or more you're barred for 10 years so there's lots of people who could actually adjust their status who aren't able to because of this statute oh,
2: Rizaline, in. all you hear is how you've come so far oh, Rizaline, how can we judge your skin never
3: about your heart. It's such a strange notion. It it doesn't really follow any sort of logic on why that's necessary or what that accomplishes other than potentially just the breakup of families and and marriages. It just doesn't I, I have a hard time figuring out what the real motivation behind that was, other than to harm people.
1: Yes, it's, and you know, I, I like to tell people that it was Bill Clinton who signed that into law because there's a big perception out there that, oh, the Democrats are the good ones in right. immigration. and the But actually, Democrats have done a lot of harm. You know, Obama sure. welcomed 85,000 refugees, which is wonderful and a credit to him. But he also was the deporter in chief. He did a great deal of harm mm. to undocumented immigrants um, in the U.S. And just like, this statute that Bill Clinton put in place that supposedly was a, was going to deter unlawful immigration, but nobody even knows about the no. statute until it comes time to adjust their status. Then right. they find out, what? <laughs> this is a law? I didn't know this, you know? So it's a, a law that doesn't do its job because no one knows about it.
3: Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: It's very sad and very, yeah, it seems like so punitive for something, uh, you know, that's so— that would that before was not a problem, you well, know the
3: practicality of it is it's yes. just so wildly impractical for anyone to leave you know the job and relationships and family that they have founded here in whatever six month or beyond that time it it just really ruins their economic and relational fortunes,
1: yeah, I met this man actually I went to the Calvin Festival of Faith and Writing uh, a couple years ago. The last one they had, I think it was 2017. Cool. And on my way back home from the airport, the, the driver that I had was like an Uber driver. And he and I started having a conversation because he was Latino. I'm Latina. So we're having Ooh. a conversation. And he told me that he actually was married to an American citizen and that he and his wife had to move to Texas, to sorry, to Mexico, where they lived just over the border from Texas, and she would cross the border every day and work in Texas. And they had to do that for ten years while he was barred from being in the U.S.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: <laughs> and then they even had kids, wow. you know. And yeah, he, he, it was just. And I'm like, but how many people are able to do something like that? You right. Know, that's right. so so harsh, and yeah. Yeah, our laws are very outdated and lots of, it needs true reform and update rather than just these little statutes that keep being tacked on, you know, by different presidents who are in office. Right. Well,
3: because it kind of, the way that you're talking about it, it kind of makes it sound like the statutes don't necessarily serve the actual purpose. They're not useful for limiting folks who want to come here because yeah, they just don't know about it. They're not going to be deterred by that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and additionally, you know, just kind of going down that train of thought, you know, how do we, how do we fix the current system? And, and obviously we're, we're entering into a, another election cycle here, um, unfortunately. So now we all get bombarded with uh, leaflets and commercials and, <laughs> and that sort of thing. But um, <clears throat> so now we have all of these candidates who, who are, who are, you know, promising the world as they do, you know, uh, before they get in there. And, um, and so we've, we've seen a couple of debates now. We've got a multitude of Democratic candidates, obviously. Um, we've got a president in there um, who, uh, through this strange idea, again, of deterrent, you know, by separating families from the children and everything, and it, it, you see these horrific pictures down there. Obviously, that doesn't seem to be deterring anyone. Um, Mm -hmm. and now you've got these democratic candidates who are going to run against him. And obviously immigration is going to be one of the major topics of conversation. So what, what being someone who's worked on the front lines and you've seen the ugliness of it and you've seen, um, kind of the, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, these laws that are archaic that just simply aren't working as intended. Um, what would you like to hear out of a candidate? Like what would be some, some useful, tangible, Realistic reform that we could make that would that would help both sides.
1: I would like to see comprehensive immigration reform that does three things. One, it makes it harder to immigrate or work illegally. So this means we have a secure border and we create an enforceable workplace authorization system. So. Right now, people can pick and choose if they want to do E-Verify as an employer. And that doesn't make any sense to me if we want to have an enforceable authorization system. So that's one, make it harder to immigrate or work illegally. Two, make it easier to enter and to work lawfully. We have labor needs in our country. We have an aging population and immigrants come in their prime working ages. And the fact is 70 to 75% of the people, of our food comes from California Central Valley, okay? Mm-hmm. And, like, 70% of those workers are undocumented immigrants. Our citizens simply are not going to do those jobs. We have even tried that, and they haven't taken those jobs. So we have labor needs. Immigrants right now make up 13% of the population, but they make up 16% of the workforce. Wow. And so. That's something that we need. And we, and also, I mean, as Christians and as human beings, we should care about keeping families together. And so make it easier to enter and work lawfully. And then three, require those who are here unlawfully to earn legal status. They could pay a penalty, pass a background check, pay taxes. And I think any candidate that talks about a comprehensive reform to the system like that, I think is a really, um, it's a candidate that I want to hear from. And so far, you know, they're not that far along yet to where they've talked about the ins and outs of these things. But that to me is real comprehensive immigration uh, reform, because I think a lot of people have the perception that those of us who are immigration advocates and who care about immigrants, that we somehow want to open borders. Right. And in in an ideal world, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact is, we're not going to go back, you know, 500 years to when there were no borders as we understand them today. And so the reality is we're going to have a border. So let's have a secure one, but not a militarized border. I think it's so cruel. We have this militarized border right now and we don't have an invading army in Mexico. We have poor migrants fleeing violence and terror and famine. In fact, yeah. and so and, and the language
3: this, is just so demonizing that is being yeah. used that to really try. I mean, what what they say, caravanning? Like that just is kind of silly.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very, um, it's cruel that what's happening right now, and it's it, it's not even it's not helping us. It's not helping Ooh. them. This is something, you know, it's kind of like you're at this standstill and we could be caring for our neighbors. All these resources we're putting into more border patrol we could be nice. using to actually care for our neighbors in need. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. Well, um, I would love to get into the book now um, and, and really talk about, because I think I think one of the important things too is not only talk about like what's going on at the border, um, but really tie it back to um, just so I can make my evangelical friends um, feel really bad. No, I'm just kidding, (laughs) (laughs) but um, sort of, but um, so I I really, I think you do a great job of of the the way that you have the book laid out. Um, You kind of divide up the chapters and the references in in scripture. And um, what I thought was really cool is, I mean, I definitely learned a lot. And so you start with the book of Ruth. Which I thought was really neat. And, and you tell the story from kind of a different angle um, that I really enjoyed. And so talk a little bit about that, like Ruth and, and kind of um, the laws that are or, or at least the um, protections and uh, um, the, the respect and that sort of thing that she's allotted um, as she herself is an, an immigrant. And also, um, you, you reference this New Testament term, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but uh, philozenia? Is that right? Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, what does that mean? And 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 talk about like what? How does Ruth really just kind of, uh, um, kind of set the the example of of how the Bible really you know and how God wants us to treat immigrants?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. But philozenia is the opposite of xenophobia, which is a fear and hatred of immigrants. Philozenia is a love and embrace of immigrants, and, and that's that in the, is the Bible. In- and that's in the Bible. It's in the New Testament. <laughs> yes, because it's in Greek.
0: <laughs> there we go.
1: And uh, yeah, we don't, we don't see a translation like that, right? But, uh, right? but that's the translation. And I love the book of Ruth, and I always have. And in fact, I talk in the, in the book about the first time I ever encountered that text, and it was in relation to a wedding. There were those words from Ruth, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And in fact, her words are not about marriage or love or loyalty or, I mean, they are about love in the sense that she loves her mother-in-law, but Mm -hmm. it's not about romantic love like you would have at a wedding. And these are words spoken about her commitment to migrate with her Mm mother-in-law. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And they've just experienced all these losses and they're returning To Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem because they're widows, they don't have any sons, grandsons, and they're in dire need. Mm -hmm. And so they return. And what happens when they return is so beautiful because. I'm so used to reading stories in the Bible where God tells the Israelites to do something, and they disobey, and God sends prophets and judgment. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) a lot of it. Yeah,
1: (laughs) But in this story, uh, that does not happen. And it's shocking because in Deuteronomy 23, it says that Ammonites and Moabites—and Ruth was a Mm Moabite— Can't belong to the Lord's assembly, not even the 10th generation of such people. In fact, they were forbidden from marrying Moabite women. And yet, when she returns, happens to be at the beginning of of the harvest, she's welcomed into the field of Boaz. Mm -hmm. And there she gleans what the harvesters had left behind, just as God had instructed. God had said to his people, when you are reaping the harvest of your field and you leave some grain in the field... Don't go back and get it. Let it go to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows. Similarly, with olives and olive trees and grapes from your vineyard, let the leftovers go to these people that are on the margins. And this is what happens for Ruth. She's allowed. And the work that she performs is not undignified or demeaning. The way that many immigrants in our, in our context, they do the work that nobody else wants to do. Right. But the work that she does is hard work but it's exactly the kind of work that everyone else in ancient Judah did. And she's not just entitled to a job, but to respect, you know, Boaz tells his workers, his male workers, Hey, no name calling, no harassment, no assault. Mm -hmm. And both of them are entitled to Sabbath time off for rest and reflection and celebration and worship. Um, In fact, she is welcomed and loved to such a degree that she marries Boaz, Mm -hmm. who is, you know, a man and um, a man from Judah and she becomes the grandmother of King David and is in the lineage of Jesus that's mentioned in in Matthew and all along, you know, we don't learn the story from that context, but she is a foreign woman who is welcomed Mm -hmm. into this society. And when I, really love about this story is that there's such mutuality in it. You know, they bless her, they receive her, but she blesses them too. She brings her love and her loyalty. She brings her hard work. You know, she marries, integrates fully into this community and she becomes one of them. It's really what you see in the journey of salvation, right? You start out as a stranger and you end up in the family of God, it's such a beautiful story. Yeah. Well,
3: I just, I loved the layout of that contrast and compare the the treatment of Ruth in the book of Ruth and to the plight of the American immigrant agricultural worker, especially a woman, you know, dealing with yes. those very long hours, the physical punishment of the labor itself, but also the risk of assault and abuse by coworkers or managers and how much... She was well taken care of, but we are really failing these people in this way. And I loved uh, what you said. I'll quote you here, but our compassion for those who are poor and marginalized is considered more important than efficiency or profit. And I think that's a huge piece of what's missing in, I mean, one of the bottom line, I, I felt like that could be a whole book in itself, of how you know there was some loss of profit for Boaz to let Ruth glean in his fields and but that was biblically mandated, and he mm-hmm. actually obeyed it, like you said to point out that that really kind of stark contrast to a lot of other spots in the Bible um, it just is really important, I think that especially America and our individualized culture and everything that it has been kind of put on a pedestal about our society is really failing anyone who isn't, you know, reaching that achievement level or, or, you know, the people that are the poor, the poor in spirit, the immigrants, foreigners, anyone who's in that position. It's just really terribly sad.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That story is stands in such sharp contrast to our system today, you know, and we think of people in the old Testament as these primitive people, but sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, it's so interesting. And I, I really love that story and the way that we see that. And it's interesting because that story, people often think of Boaz as sort of the hero that comes in and saves the day, the kinsman redeemer, but really, the story is about these two women, and Naomi is the person who changes the most in that mm-hmm. story. She's the one that goes from despair to hope in God. Yeah.
0: One of the things too, I think that that's important to note is the fact that you, you mentioned that they were both widows, and in mm-hmm. that time period, what would have, what would that have meant for two women who had no no sons, no husbands, that sort of thing?
1: You know the. True, though sexist, <laughs> fact was that in the ancient world of the Bible, a woman without a husband was not a woman. No protection, mm-hmm. no one to uh, provide for you without sons, without a husband. It really, your only assurance of economic security was to be married. It's not as if you could make your own way in the world. Um, you had to be married or connected to a male in some way as a son or um, in, in Naomi's case, a male relative, right? That's why she's so excited about Boaz mm-hmm. being a relative of hers. So, yeah, truly people on the, on the margins of society who were more often than not so destitute. You know, when I started reading about widows in the ancient world, it gave me new eyes when I would read stories in the New Testament about widows, Because I just realized, wow, this reader wants me to know that this person is the most vulnerable of all vulnerable people, you know?
0: Yeah.
3: And it talks about widows and orphans all the time. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And to us, you know, these things, because, you know, my dad's a widower and I don't, (laughs) you know, I know widows that are, in our context, it doesn't have the same weight, right? Right, right. No, not anymore. You're right. Mm Mm-hmm. Gosh
0: so one of, one of the the other uh, examples that you give <clears throat> as you as you get into the book is you talk about Abraham and Sarah mm-hmm. and I thought this was really interesting because you really shed some light on the fact that you know you uh, everyone's you know who who's gone to Sunday school has probably at one point or another heard um, some of the stories and there's some crazy stories in the Bible, and specifically Abraham pretending like his wife is his sister is definitely up there with weird stories uh, in the Bible. <laughs> but um you you kind of point out kind of uh as we go on the timeline Abraham obviously does this for a reason there's obviously a reason behind it um yeah you know, for protection and that sort of thing but talk a little bit about like just really like how serious that was i mean and and you point out rightly so that i mean essentially what he's doing is he's trafficking his own wife
1: right so Abraham and Sarah, Abraham experiences a famine, and that's really the number one reason in the Bible for migration. Mm. There's a famine in the land, and when that happens, people go off in search of food. And Egypt was this place where people frequently went when there was famine because of the, of the Nile River and its very fertile riverbanks. And that so they, they were the hitting. story
3: of Joseph too. Like, right? that you yeah. point out in a different part of the book of Joseph having migrated or well, you know, he was trafficked there too, but he he had a lot to do with famine and, and relief of famine.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and that's what brings Abraham and Sarah to Egypt. And they probably arrived at some kind of gate. There was probably a road that was commonly taken by bands of immigrants like them. And they arrive, and when they arrive at this place and their question, Abraham commits fraud. He lies. He says, She's my sister, which is a half truth because she's also his wife. And he tells Sarah, I mean, he tells her, I mean, it's the very thing that you hear that traffickers do help me, protect me. You know, mm-hmm. if you do this for me, you know, we'll be okay. Um, and she is sent off to the palace to be with Pharaoh, and Abraham grows prosperous. You know, he has land and cattle and all of this stuff. And and she's being trafficked with a Pharaoh. And it's a really terrible story. And when I read it, this is one of the reasons I love the Bible, because it's so descriptive. Here's a perfect place for the Bible to lie to us and give us this
3: beautiful (laughs) perfect picture
1: of Abraham. (laughs) Yeah. And instead we get the truth. We get the truth about it, a very imperfect person who acts out of fear and anxiety and self-protection. And and we might also say cowardly, right? Very much so. Yeah, he lets her suffer while he grows wealthy. And and yet we have this story, it, it always makes me think of um, Brian Stevenson, the attorney, you know, civil rights attorney. He says, Each of us is more than the worst thing that we've done. Yeah. Well, here we are. Here we are with Abraham, one of the worst things he has ever done. And God still tells us, right? He's the father of the faith, which is so fascinating. And we take all of this information about Abraham, right? None of us, I never heard a sermon saying that Abraham was a horrible person and none of us should look at his story or follow his example. People always take the elements of his story and put them in the context of his whole life, right? Mm -hmm. And of also God's journey with Abraham, right? And God's promises to Abraham. And we don't let this terrible act define Abraham for the rest of his life. And yet we do do that in our context for immigrants, right?
2: Mm -hmm. Immigrants,
1: they cross a, a border, which is a federal misdemeanor. It's not even a felony crime and yet we assume that that means, you know, that's it. <laughs> they're horrible people, they're criminals, and that's why I wanted to call that chapter Abraham the criminal immigrant, but my editor would not let me do that. <laughs> <laughs> she said, "You are <laughs> it's going to be hard enough for people to think of Abraham as an immigrant, let alone a criminal one." <laughs> right. So,
3: <laughs> that's funny.
1: <laughs> so, um so I wanted to put that into context because, of course, the most frequent question I get when I go to speak about immigration is, Karen, what about Romans 13? I want to talk about Romans 13 and how, you know, people are breaking the law and they'll come out. It says, let every, subject be, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God and that God has placed these authorities in place, right? And so we have to obey them. And I just remind people— one, U.S. laws are not God's immutable laws. Our no. laws change all the time. How many people are out there trying to get abortion, you know, Roe v. Wade repealed, right? Because they know how our laws work. We live, we live in a constitutional republic, and we have a legislative branch, and they write laws and amend them all the time. It used to be legal to own people as property, right. to deny yeah. to deny women the right to vote or own property, Right. Well, and how many of
3: those people sped on the way to church? Right,
1: exactly. (laughs) I mean, let's
3: point out the level of law we're breaking and how you probably have broken a similar, you know, did you roll through that stop sign, guy, you know? Yeah,
1: Yeah. (laughs) and I also point out to them, you know, Boaz broke the law when he married Ruth. Sure. You know, they were forbidden from marrying Boabites. But I would say that God really blessed that marriage and that union and that God was not against it because it seemed that God cared more, right, about the care of Ruth and Naomi, about the Judah, the people of Judah learning to love their neighbor as themselves, as God's law commanded, right, to love and welcome the immigrant. And Paul himself was executed by the state because he broke Roman laws that came into conflict with his faith, you know. Exactly. You know, he he wrote a lot of letters from prison, right? How many of us know the prison epistles and we know that Paul. Yeah. And so I feel like people often take this and I deal with it seriously when they bring it up. I, I say, OK, let's talk about uh, Romans 13. And really, Abraham was my way of dealing with that in the book because it's, it's the top question out there when I
0: <laughs> speak yeah. about
1: immigration. That, I think, and the other thing that people are is that they feel like immigrants today are different than their ancestors who came before. <laughs>
3: sure. Yeah.
1: Uh, and so that those are the two big things that people want to know. And I let them know, look, uh, immigrants have not changed. They have the same need, the same humanity. What has changed are the laws. There are no lines to get into, so that creates unlawful immigration, and unlawful immigration leads to vulnerability and invisibility for immigrants. And so that's really the issue. I found out in my research that ninety-eight percent of the people who came through Ellis Island were admitted to the US. Ninety-eight mm-hmm. percent. Wow. Basically, if you had lice or, you know, a disease. That was evident, like if you had, you know, leprosy or yeah. if you had tuberculosis, tuberculosis. <laughs> right. yeah, that was a big one. You weren't allowed to enter, but 98%. So basically, if you could get your body on the ship, you were in. And mm-hmm. so that has changed dramatically, even though right now we are experiencing the greatest refugee crisis that we know of in recorded history. Mm-hmm. It was, it's greater even than after World War II. I mean, it's it's terrible. And only 4% of refugees are ever resettled.
2: We all know it's so easy to fake it When all we care about is being blameless All oh, rising, outside
0: looking in there, there a couple of questions, but one that just, just popped into my head. So what, like, I think... I think it's easy for a lot of people who who um are on the other side I would say than probably where we're sitting right now where you know they it's it's illegal they they broke the law that you know deport them. So mm-hmm. but I think I think the part that we that we don't really take into consideration is what what happens to those people once they're deported. What Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think a lot of people just have this like misconception that they're just, you know, pitching tents at the border and camped out over there and, and everything's great. Um, but what, what happens? Cause I've, I've read reports where people have been deported and have been killed in the country. They're trying to flee from violence, you know? So what, mm-hmm. so what it, in your, in your uh, experience, what, what does happen to these people?
1: So it depends, you know, a lot of times, I'll be honest with you, we lose touch with people once they're deported. We don't know you know, what happened. We, we may be able to know for a time. So if you are not Mexican, you are not deported to Mexico. And so that's the other thing that people think that everybody's deported to Mexico. No, you're deported to, to your, your country, country of, of origin. origin. Yeah, to yeah. your country of origin. So you were deported back to Guatemala, back to Honduras, back to wherever it is uh, was your origin. And In those countries right now, in Guatemala, in Honduras, and it's funny. I was just talking to a friend who's from El Salvador, and you know, he's middle class. He's a student at Fuller Seminary, and um, and we were talking, and I said, you know, how do people in El Salvador respond to the migrants? And he said, well, you know, it's really hard because we've had so many Americans and other Westerners seek to help people who have been deported and returned back to El Salvador. And he said, but what happens is because they're poor, they come back to these poor neighborhoods, which are ravaged by these gangs and controlled by these gangs, or even the police are afraid to enter. I mean, I've read reports when I was looking at asylum cases where the police themselves wear masks when they enforce laws because they're afraid of being recognized because they might be killed (laughs) if they're recognized by the— so it's this this kind of like terrible lawlessness that's happening where the government doesn't really have control of these areas. And so because people return back to these areas. So he told me the story of a woman who was helped to, to buy a home and to start a business only for gangs to come in, like the mafia. They call it the mafia of the poor, and start extorting her and start terrorizing mm. her and her family. And so this is what people return to. There is no, nothing for them to return to except this, because this is not something that their governments have been able to control. And so one of the most hopeful stories I can tell you was I was recently at the Mexico border from uh, over the border from um, San Diego into Tijuana, and I did get to meet a lot of Mexican pastors that are working to address the asylum humanitarian crisis at the border. And one of the most heartening things I saw is I went, I visited a shelter that was just for deportees. And so these are people who can't return back unless they come back through the desert like they did before. They can't return to the U.S. But this shelter was so dignifying. It was so clean, so organized. They had social workers assisting with job services, with mental health support, with medical support. They even had art therapy. Oh, Wow.
3: That sounds like <laughs> better than most shelters in the U.S. Yes. Yeah.
1: yes. Even, it was better than all the detention centers we have on of the other course, side exactly. of the border. And um, even the food they ate was fresh. You know, they, they all had chores and things to do. And they were just helping people to plan a new future and a new life right there in Mexico. And in fact, if you speak English, you can get jobs at call centers uh, because, you know, a lot of jobs are have gone overseas already. Yeah, sure. And so it was so heartening to see how much the Mexican church is doing to address this crisis and how much, you know, there was an area we visited of Haitian immigrants who their intent initially was to cross the border into the U.S., But then they found out that the United States um, ended temporary protected status for them. Mm -hmm. And so then there was no point in crossing over. And so they decided to make their lives there in Mexico, and there's like a little Haiti. And this church just got together, and they decided, hey, we have this land. We're going to build homes, and it's going to be for these communities. So there's little Haiti, and there's little Honduras, and... (laughs) I was really encouraged and heartened. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't awful things happening at the border because, of course, there are. But to me, it just spoke of God's uh, greater care. You know, I, I called my book The God Who Sees because I feel like these migrants are people the world doesn't value and doesn't see. But God values their lives and God sees them. And this is part of God's provision for them. And that, to me, was so encouraging because that's what faith is, right? We trust in what we do not see. Mm -hmm. And we believe that God is at work in things that we don't understand. And so, for me, that was such an encouraging time. But, yes, the fate of deported people is, is not what I saw there in Mexico. It's mostly the stories that you hear about where people return and they're murdered or they're um, extorted they're forced into gangs uh, women experience horrible sexual violence so yeah, yeah. It's all
3: the things that they were trying to flee from in the first place and that right. brought them <laughs> to to try to migrate in the in the very first
0: mm-hmm. well, a couple of things that you mentioned there that that you kind of already started to dispel another misconception this idea that that Immigrants come over and they're just a drain on the economy and that sort of thing. But it sounds like these are people who they want to work. They want to make a living. They want to, they want to have uh, respect and, and dignity. And, um, and again, I think you rightly said, I think we so often turn them into a statistic or, or um, kind of sep- separate them out into what we would call the other. So it's very mm-hmm. easy to to demonize a group of people when they're just a, a number now. Exactly.
1: Yeah. One of the biggest misconceptions is that immigrants come here to receive public benefits. They're not eligible right. for public benefits. And that's an citizens have a
3: very difficult time. Yeah. I'm a social yeah. worker. I mean, that's that's a very difficult thing to access, even as an American citizen born here.
1: Yes. And, you know, one of the things I, I would point out to people when I would go speak about immigration is I would ask them, to go home and take a look at their social security card and that it's this little piece of construction paper, right? Right. <laughs> Even a teenager with a decent printer could make one, a fake one, mm-hmm. because, and yet that little piece of construction paper is my authorization to work in this country as a U.S. citizen, mm-hmm. right? And if my government cares so much that everybody be a legal worker, why isn't it as secure as my US passport which has a chip in it, <laughs> it right. has a chip or my driver's license which has the magnetic strip on the back? Why isn't it that secure? It, to me it's very duplicitous of our government to have this really conflicting response. You have the IRS and the Social Security Administration who accommodate payments from undocumented immigrants mm-hmm. and then you have another part the DHS who's maintaining that they shouldn't be present here and is trying to deport them. It's just like we, we're we sending these conflicting messages. It's like having two signs at the border and one says, welcome, mm-hmm. you know, work, <laughs> jobs available. And the other one says, keep out. Well, it was kind which of
3: how sent? they allowed, uh, you know, they, they counted slaves or uh, black men and women as three-fifths of a person yet said, sure, you can fight in our war. <laughs> Go right, right yeah. ahead, pick up a gun right. and fight for our side. You're a whole person there, but, you know, you're only three-fifths otherwise. It, it's, it's very conflicted based on what needs are being met by, by that individual.
1: It is, and it's treating people as human resources instead of human beings. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, and last year, undocumented immigrants paid $12 billion in taxes. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. So they're paying a lot, and most of them are doing it with fake Social Security cards. So that means they're not filing for their refund at the end of the year oh, no, because they, they get don't want back, to do that. No. Now. Right. So that's even more money that, our, um, that the IRS is, is getting. And so that's a big, big myth around immigration. And so I, I try to reinforce to people, immigrants come here to work. They pay taxes. In fact, uh, the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank, you know, Mm -hmm. even they have acknowledged, and you can go to their page and and look at it, that the average undocumented immigrant pays $80,000 more throughout their lifetime into the system than they ever receive back.
3: Of course, yeah, because they're not able to get it back.
1: They're not able to get it back. Now, they are, of course— sending their kids to school. <laughs> so, yeah. so at the state level and the local level, you have that. But I think we'd all agree that an educated population benefits all of us. Well, And the
3: cost sure. of that is such a drop in the bucket compared to the dollars going right. towards, like you said, into the system. So I, I liked this line a lot from the book where you said there's plenty for you and there's plenty for me. But do you kind of think that there's a bit of a scarcity mindset in America, and specifically the church that argues against that statement when it comes to immigration.
1: Yes. So one of the things that you'll hear people say a lot is that, oh, you know, President Trump and his administration, they dehumanize immigrants. And I believe that that's true. They do that. But I Mm -hmm. also think that they recognize the humanity of immigrants. They just think American lives are more important than immigrant lives, they yes. would never say that, <laughs> you know, yeah. they would yeah. never say that outright. But the, when you hear them say uh, in the way that they're speaking, that's what I hear. Yeah, and
3: they talk around it all the time.
1: Yeah. And so what, what people experience is, oh, immigrants are going to come in and I'm not going to have a job, right? Mm-hmm. And I understand that. I understand the person who feels economically imperiled, right? And yes. they want someone to be responsible for this. And, and so we have people like Donald Trump who have outright blamed immigrants for this. Immigrants, refugees, right, for all of this. And the truth is that immigrants create jobs. Because if you think about it, you know, I live in Baltimore. This is a city that is part of the Rust Belt, right? It's mm-hmm. shrinking. And the only way that cities like mine grow, in fact, Buffalo was brought back from the brink right. <laughs> by by refugees and immigrants, because if you think about immigrant communities moving into a city, well, now they need jobs, right? But they also need haircuts. They also will buy groceries. They also need to rent apartments. And so all of these... And they're going to build
3: housing, too. If, right. As they need it, they're going to be part of the process of making it.
1: Exactly. So almost all economists say that immigration, and particularly illegal immigration, have benefited the U.S. economy. Because immigrants fill in the holes in our labor market at both the high end and the low end of the educational spectrum. And so, yeah, I don't know that many immigrants in Baltimore. I don't know that many American citizens in Baltimore who want to work cleaning linens Mm -hmm. for all the hospitals that Johns Hopkins has around here. I mean, you think about hospital linens and the body fluids that are involved in that, you know, but this is work that immigrants do here. They work at the Amazon warehouse. They work at the Under Armour warehouse. You know, I know where all the immigrants in my community work. They do a lot of service jobs, a lot of construction jobs. I don't see U.S. citizens flocking to these industries in any way. Mm -hmm. I see people because they know, oh, I speak English. Maybe I can be a receptionist, you know, if I don't have a lot of education, let's say, right? And so, um, so these are the jobs that immigrants do. And so then it opens up jobs for uh, Americans who have language skills and who have more education to move into other jobs. And what happens is the second generation then, the children of these immigrants, then they're the ones that go to college, right? And they move up. And then the third generation, they're the ones that, you know, major in musical theater and whatever. (laughs) So so that's that's like the cycle that you see. And it's the cycle that we saw with the Irish immigration, with the Italian immigration, with, you know, Eastern Europeans. You had, um, that's the cycle. You come, you're, you're a poor immigrant, you're trying, you're struggling to survive, but you provide for your children, right? And they're able to have a better life than, than you had. yeah. And, and so what, one of
3: the things that I think concerns me and that seems to be a lot of what the politicians are somewhat talking around is that I think some of that us and them is not just that it was a few generations back, but I think that there is some deep seated racism just to yes. call it right out that mm-hmm. they're saying, well, that's fine. Cause my, people were white and it's the black and brown people that I'm concerned with. And and that is just really uh, untenable as part of, I mean, especially coming out of the church specifically that yes. that is, that seems to be a lot of driving this us them language and these fears and these scarcity mindsets, I think.
1: Yes. And you know, when I speak to people, so You know, I established some kind of rules of engagement. I don't let people say horrible, racist things in front of me, even if I'm speaking to a church. I don't let people do that. And I will rephrase their question. Even if they call people illegals, I said, you know, human beings are not illegal. So we we talk about unauthorized immigrants or undocumented immigrants, Mm -hmm. right? Because they're they're people. And we want to use humanizing, dignifying language. Of course. And so when people say outright racist things, I just don't engage. Honestly, those are not the people that I'm after. And I'm not going to defend my humanity to them. Because when I talk about immigrants, I'm talking about me.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> right. It's
1: part, I'm, I'm part of that community. And so I want them to... I certainly want people to engage in a respectful dialogue. But when people come at me with really racist things, you know, or recently there was that uh, journalist who said, you know, he didn't want little brown grandchildren Mm, uh, someday. You know, I have nothing to say to somebody like that, because if you're just an outright racist and you're not there to engage in dialogue, to grow, you're not curious, you're not willing to love your neighbor, then you, know, or to get to know your neighbor in, in, to some degree, then there's nothing for us to talk about. They say that whenever you're addressing a group, you know, 20% of people are with you. 20% of people are definitely against you. yeah, <laughs> And <then laughs> you're going for that 60% in the middle, right? That don't, don't, don't know. They've heard things on both sides. Maybe they don't know what to think or how to think about it. Um, and that might
3: be a even sharper statistic when you're talking about something as polarizing and as politicized and as um, just has been so divisive and, and used divisively. I think that's the biggest, one of the biggest problems right now is that it's being used to continue to divide and to sew up dissent.
1: Yes. I think as much as possible, we have to communicate to people like, you are the immigrant. You know, I talk to mostly groups of Christians (laughs) and I say, you know, in the new Testament, Paul used this metaphor of us. We're citizens of another world. Our citizenship is not here. You know, our loyalty and our commitment isn't to our own country or nationality, but it's to our God. It's to the things that Jesus said and commanded us to do. And, if Jesus was anything, he was not a person that was pro-empire. That's why he was yeah. executed by the empire.
3: <laughs> <You know? Right. laughs> That's a very good point.
1: <laughs> so, so I, I do remind people of that, and I try to get them to see, you are the immigrant, according to Paul. That's who you are as someone who is a person of faith, a, a Christian. And if this is what Your Bible says what your God says. This is why I engage in the book and narrative, because I wanted people to see those stories. I know that we're transformed when we see the the Bible from the margins, but most of us don't have eyes to see that, because the people who are in our seminaries and in our pulpits are mostly white men, and they're not seeing the world from the margins. And so I wrote the book to help people to see that perspective of, look— These are immigrants in the Bible. Jesus himself fled. And it was so fascinating to read about the Coptic church in Egypt and how they honor these spaces where they believe the Holy Family took refuge in Egypt. It was really beautiful to learn that because this is a story that we've lost in the West, right? We we don't focus on Jesus as a refugee. Um, But, yeah, and people have told me, have come up to me and told me they were— really surprised by that, that they had never considered the nationalities of these people and that they had been moving around. I went um, in the spring, uh, we took my dad to Europe for his 70th birthday and we went to Dublin Mm -hmm. and (laughs) and there is an emigration museum there. Emigration, like people who have left Ireland. And so you know, a lot of people left Ireland and came to the U.S. We know that, right? During the of Great course. Famine, John's and my people, <laughs> yes. and
3: among them, both of us are Irish descent. Yeah.
1: Yes. Well, it was so fascinating the view the Irish had of um, immigration because they've had citizens leave. Even in 2015, thirty thousand Irish people left Whoa. because there's not jobs and economic yeah,
3: opportunities. There's a lot of economic yeah. depression,
1: right? And what they said, you know, is migration involves loss, but it also involves hope. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a story of sorrow and grief, and sometimes it's a story of adventure and new opportunities. Yeah. And I love the way that they thought about migration, and and they talked about how migration has always been a reality in the world. People have always been moving around from place to place in search of different things. And it was just a really beautiful museum. The museum is called EPIC. And at the end, you find out that means every person is connected.
0: Oh, that's so cool. That's so
3: yeah, neat.
1: It was, it was so cool to see that. I was very encouraged you know, by by being there and seeing their very positive view. And one of the things that I appreciated about them is they don't perpetuate a myth about a good immigrant. So we have this myth in our country that immigrants are like, hardworking and super grateful and working in service jobs as nannies and lawn care workers, and they serve the greater community, and they're just quiet, and they go hide back in their homes, right, and are completely law-abiding. But they had a section of the museum that was devoted to Irish people who'd gone to other countries and become criminals. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) That's amazing. It was so interesting because they said, not always do people leave Ireland and go and give their best to another country. Sometimes this happens. And that's the fact. That's a fact. Immigrants are just people. They're imperfect. They mm-hmm. have weaknesses. They have flaws. And we shouldn't have an expectation you know, that they're somehow better. Then they should behave better than our citizens. They're just people. Well, that's a doing good the
3: balanced best. view of it. Yeah,
1: yeah, It was just doing the best they can, like all of us, right? Yeah,
3: precisely.
1: So, yeah, it was uh, really good.
0: That's that's amazing. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I because I, I know I realize we're we're getting close to the end of our time here, but I one of the quotes that you have in in, in the book that I thought was so profound because <clears throat> when I think about um, Jesus, and by the way, I. I I feel I feel stupid to the point like like the number of times that I've had to point this thing out that should be so obvious when we're talking about Jesus not only being an immigrant himself but also he's he he was not a white person with blue eyes like can we absolutely not so like for 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 people to be to claim to be Christian and and to follow the Bible and and to be so anti-immigrant and and potentially like have a, you know racist tendencies, like that's just so laughable to me. I'm like, you follow a guy who was an immigrant and who was born in the Middle East. Like what do you yeah. You know, anyway. So ah. that was not my question. That was just a rant on my behalf. So <laughs> <laughs> um but you have this quote in the book that I thought was amazing. Um, because when I when I think about Jesus specifically and his teachings and his mission on earth, I think about a guy who was, as you said earlier in the interview, very anti-empire and who, who came to really like disrupt the system, um, specifically systems of power that, um, were, were corrupt and, and would, um, you know, kind of standing on the neck of, of the, as you said, the most exposed and the most vulnerable people in society. I mean, it's very, very clear. And so you talk about this movie that you saw, um, uh, father Romero, and mm-hmm. you have this quote in there that I thought was brilliant, and I just want to quote this really quick and, and get your, your thoughts on it. But you quote him where he says, <clears throat> he says the words, I think we should all be reminded of, a church that does not provoke crisis, a gospel that does not disturb, a word of God that does not wrinkle, a word of God that does not touch the concrete sin of the society in which it is being proclaimed. What kind of gospel is that? Just nice, pious considerations that bother nobody. So, again, how do we, I guess my question in that is, how do we get back to being the type of Christians who really are on the forefront, who are doing the work, who are helping these people who are clearly in need? Because Mm -hmm. I read a statistic earlier this week uh, that says something somewhere as high as like 80% of specifically evangelical Christians uh, still support and think that we are doing this, this magnificent job at the border right now, and it stuns me. So how do we, how do we, I, I, yeah, I guess I just don't know. How do we fix that? How do we get back to being the Christians who, who actually practice what we preach and go out and protect these people and help them? Like, how do we, is, is there a way to get back there?
1: <laughs> I think there is. And I think some of the harm that's been done is, I don't know um, what your background is specifically, but I came to, became a more serious follower of Jesus in the evangelical church. And I was taught that discipleship was just about me being a slightly better person, not having thoughts about sex, (laughs) uh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) uh, not being selfish, you know, doing. And so, you know, I would read the Bible to get some little nugget for something that I could feel good about that day or something I could learn or or whatever. And that was my discipleship model. And. I feel like for a long time I felt I felt like I don't know if I can be a Christian because this seems very useless to me. This is if this is it, this is the only reason that I'm a Christian is so that I have one less dirty thought right, <laughs> tomorrow yeah, right. than I did today. And I think what Romero taught me is that the gospel has real implications for the community that our discipleship is for the community. It's not just so that we can be a little bit better. that's very self-centered, right? But how can my community be better? How can they how can there be a common good, right? flourishing for all? like you see in the book of Ruth this flourishing for the whole community because they listen to God's teaching about how they should treat immigrants. and so I encourage people that, look, there is no such thing as a marathon in the in the Justice work, and people mm-hmm. love to say that. And I'm like, who wants to engage in a marathon? That's 26 miles of running where you're going to soil your own pants. I'm like, I don't <laughs> want to do that. But the work of justice, my uh, my friend Twitter, uh, my Twitter friend Andre Henry says it's it's a it's a really a relay. You have a part to do, and that's all you can do, right? And there are things you can do, and I encourage people. One of the first things they can do is because it's really common for people to talk to me and want to get involved with immigrants out of a sense of like pity or compassion or they've heard some story or saw some picture. Right. And I let them know, first of all, you need to really examine where did you learn about immigration and what and how does your faith inform that issue?
3: Mm-hmm. Sit
1: with that first and really pray for the community and really reflect on these issues because it's not enough to just feel compassion. God wants this mutual transformation, right? It's not yeah. just me coming along to save this poor immigrant person, but God is doing a work in me as well. And so that's the first thing I encourage people to do. And then I encourage them One of the best things they can do is call their representatives. And I have this script. I can send you the script if you like. It's so simple, but I have it on like speed dial on my phone.
2: (laughs) That's awesome.
1: And I just, it's very simple, you know. I just say, Hi, I want to talk to, you know, are you, are you, do you work in, in Senator or Representative Elijah Cummings' office? He's my representative here in Baltimore. I want you to know that I'm really upset about what's happening at the border. And I'd like to know what he's doing, how he's voting on these issues. Mm-hmm. And they'll tell me, they take down my name and my, it's a, it's something that's very effective. It's more effective than social media. It's more effective than even writing them letters. If you call them, yeah. it's very, very effective. And then advocate locally where you are, you know, establish rules of engagement with your friends and family Don't let them say awful dehumanizing things to people about people in your presence, you know? So I've established that in my circle. You can disagree on the issue of immigration, but you are not allowed to dehumanize immigrants and you're not allowed to say disparaging and awful things about them. And if it's possible, if there's relationship, sometimes I ask people, you know, just curious questions like, where did you learn that? Where did you hear that? Sometimes I offer correction. Like I meet people all the time who think mm-hmm. that immigration advocates want open borders. And I say, oh, no, I don't know any that are advocating for that. Sure. Most of us want a secure border. So, And also, one of the things I tell people is one of the most helpful things you can do is not to post things <laughs> on social media, mm-hmm until you have checked the facts. And one of the best sites that you can go to is the National Immigration Forum. Another one is the American Immigration Council. These are think tanks. They're nonpartisan. And all they do is research immigration issues. And it's very accessible. It's not like some high academic language. You just type in whatever you want to know about. Refugees, DACA, anything. And you can learn about it and you can be informed so that when people say things I saw somebody post on Facebook about illegal refugees I'm like there's no such thing as an illegal refugee refugees come <laughs> here with an immigrant visa you know right so
3: <laughs> so yeah there's so much misinformation flying around and rhetoric and talking heads about this that don't really know what they're talking about unfortunately
1: yeah. And that's and it's really harmful even when it's something pro-immigrant that's posted. So so I tell people, make sure you check, you know, what you're posting. And the last thing, one of the most helpful things people can do is give to organizations that are providing legal services. And there's a lot of them working at the border. I started giving monthly to the shelter that I visited oh, because yeah. you know it's it was a it was it's it's a, a branch of the Catholic Church. And they're doing such good work that I want to support them in any way I can. But there's so many groups that are doing really good work. Raices Texas, Al Otro Lado in California. There's a lot of good groups doing really good work. And frankly... I know a lot of people want to go to the border, want to see things, but what's really needed are people who are legally trained (laughs) to be able to help these migrants. And you and I can go and we can feel sad, but we really can't help them in the way that a legal representative can. Mm -hmm. And so that's another very concrete way to be able to help immigrant families, and especially in, in the crisis at the border. So I'm sorry that's such a long answer.
3: No, that's great. It's a great answer. <laughs> it it gives some good moments of being able to walk it out and and do something because sometimes it just feels like such a big issue and and one of the main things John and I were talking about even before we started the interview was we just wish we could help, you know, without having to fly to the border and and just kind of stand there helpless. <laughs> um <laughs> because we know that's probably mostly what we would do. But um <laughs> we wanted to do things that were actually gonna be impactful and helpful to the folks who are really struggling and, and suffering.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's really it's really good. And we, we can all do something. We can't do everything, but all of us can do something. I
3: liked your relay metaphor. That that's empowering.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh man. <clears throat> this is this is such good information. We'll make sure we put links in the show notes and um, if there are any lawyers out there listening and you want to help, um, it, wh- where where would they where should they go? Like if there are happen to be some some lawyers out there who want to help and, and lend a hand uh, from a legal perspective, uh, who, who would they get in touch mm-hmm. with? you know that sort of thing.
1: Well, actually, you can contact World Relief and we can put you in touch with partner organizations that we work with there, but they have to be specifically immigration
0: lawyers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, immigration lawyers listening. Go, go there and, and, and help out. Um, this has been amazing. Um, again, this is a topic that we've wanted to cover for a really long time, and and, and uh, your book is terrific. Uh, people should go out and get it. Um, and, and, again, um, where, where can people uh, go to stay up on top of what work you're doing and, and just be informed and, and that sort of stuff?
1: Sure. So um, I have a website. It's karen-gonzalez.com. And then you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, and it's the same handle. It's at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. And the book is called The God Who Sees, and it's available wherever you like to buy books.
0: Beautiful. <laughs> it's a, such
3: a well-written book. I really enjoyed reading it and felt like I just learned a ton and saw all of those Bible stories that I was really familiar with. Um as through a really different lens, and and connected the dots uh, with the things that people who are trying to immigrate these in modern days, you know what they're really going through and what they're really seeing, and and how how similar it actually is. It's it's mm-hmm. wild how similar these stories um, that we're all kind of Sunday school familiar uh, were relating to to real people's lives today.
1: Yeah. It's true. It's amazing. It's the beauty of the Bible that it's so relevant. And we don't need to take it literally, but we need to take it seriously.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> well, People, you know, obviously listen to this podcast, but there's so much more in the book um, that we didn't even have a chance to cover. I think Katie and I have like two more pages of notes that yeah. <laughs> we didn't even get to. Um, but, you know, there's there's some really amazing stuff in there that was very eye-opening, um, like I said. So people, go out and get the book, The God Who Sees. And uh, thank you so much for, for coming yeah, on. This is an you, absolute Karen. pleasure.
1: Yeah, thank you. This was great. It was great to talk with you.
0: All right. Thank you so much.
2: Suddenly this tension in my chest feels like I'm running when I'm standing still You're controlling every part of me with six words The crazy part is that I tell myself it don't hurt
3: But the truth is
0: Well that was fun
3: It sure was
0: <laughs> Katie this is your second time Yeah How exciting
3: yeah, I'm feeling like a pretty legit deconstructionist around
0: here. <laughs> That's right. We just need, we just need, see, people at home, though, I don't think can uh, benefit from the fact that I can't see you in your beautiful red hair. Oh, it's large and in charge. Like we talked about, we talked about in the episode how just truly Irish you are. I'm
3: super Irish, y'all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, super, that was super fun, and I'm glad you got to be a part of this Um Uh, Just because, you know, your work as a social worker and stuff like that, I think it relates well. But I just thought, I thought it was very, very interesting. I thought the book was really good. Um, I wasn't just saying that. Like, it's really, really a a well-constructed book. book. Mm -hmm. She's a great writer. And I think you and I were talking about the fact that we just really like the layout in general.
3: Yeah. She set it up nicely to really tie in Bible characters and stories with the true plight of real people, not only her own story as, as an immigrant and coming to the U S as a child and growing up here and all of the, the challenges and struggles with that, but also with, um, and her faith journey, which is really very cool. And then also with other people that through her work with world relief that she's had the opportunity to meet and, um, some of their real life, uh, Discoveries and difficulties um, for them, and and how they they really tie so nicely back in to the story of of migration and, and immigration in the Bible. These these folks that we've been reading about and learning about in Sunday school for you know all of our lives.
0: Yeah, it was pretty eye opening. One of the things we didn't get a chance to talk about was the the Hebrew translation of the name Hagar, uh, which. Yes. Here's early in the Bible, and you, you kind of take it for granted, just assume from our very Western, Eng, you know, English-speaking society that, that that is her name. Right. But in fact, it means uh, foreign thing. Yeah. Which is terrible.
3: Yeah. Foreign it's thing. A really tragic way to refer to some person, you know, it's just very dehumanizing, as Karen said.
0: Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. She goes into that in the book. Um, definitely cannot recommend it enough. Um, there's tons of stories, like Katie said, in there that are really really fascinating. Um, one of the things I wish we had gotten to, we didn't get a chance to get to. There's just so much good information that that um, other questions that I felt were really important that I'm glad we got to. But one of the things I thought was was just really telling, uh, specifically because you know from a very Western perspective. Where you know, like I said, we won the human lottery. We were born in a very safe place for the most part. You know, obviously we're not without crime, but I can go down the street and and get a cheeseburger without fear of you know being gunned down in the parking lot. Like it's not a concern. My daughter or that it was outside. shuttered.
3: That the that the hamburger stand was shuttered based on the mafia extorting the owner.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so, like these are not concerns that we have here, you know, because we're lucky, we're fortunate. Like we live in this, this great country that, you know, affords us those freedoms. But like some of the disconnect, I think, when we're, when we as fortunate people talk about immigration, she tells the story about how when, when she immigrated over, she's in class. I don't know if you remember this, but she's talking about how, um, in, in high school, I think it was, they had, um, uh, like parents who came in who who served in the Vietnam War and they're talking right. about just the 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 shock of seeing a dead body for the first time and her reaction was very different she's like when i was a kid i saw a dead body you know yeah. this was like a regular thing and one of the things i wanted to get to that we didn't have a, have time is just um just the difference in terms of like how we view uh death and violence and, and things of that nature it's it's there's almost a disconnect for us it's almost like this uh, abstract idea and I and, and what role that plays into how we interact and treat immigrants and how we treat the issue of immigration in general.
3: Yeah. My husband often says that I could talk about trauma all day and we didn't even get to bring that up yeah. because it is a huge part of what is being inflicted on these individuals who are just trying to keep themselves and their families alive and safe. Um, and, and the, the Type of bureaucracy and some of the red tape and some of the lengthy waiting and, and some of the just really broken down parts of our immigration system have truly traumatized these individuals, not only just even the fact that they could have come here traumatized in the first place with things like having to see a dead body at the age of seven or so, so, something like that. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's really tragic. I wanted to give you kudos to um, acknowledging, you didn't use the word, but the word is privilege, John. Yes, As you. a white male, <laughs> you, you pointed out, and, and I'm a white female. And, and yeah, we, we both are really, we acknowledge that and, and see that for ourselves and try and do our best to work out how that affects us and how that affects the way we see the world
0: yeah I mean one of the things that you you rightly pointed out is that you know race certainly plays a large role in how we treat um you know immigrants who are coming over and <clears throat> what's interesting is um you know obviously that's a a huge topic of conversation right now absolutely um it, and and unfortunately has uh to some degree or a large degree even been used as a political tool um to divide and secure votes and that, and things of that nature um. And it just reminds me of there's a the guest we had on a couple years ago, I think, um, Dr. Drew Hart, um, who has a who has a terrific book um, that just one of many that we've um, um, that we've read that I think was really eye opening mm. f- for a person who really does benefit from you know a, a society or that's structured in such a way that like I as a white middle class heterosexual male in the United States of America just benefit from and don't even know it half the time, yeah. just cause it's so baked into the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even starting to become aware of that is, is just an important step. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And the other thing that, that just came to mind is, um, there's this great book by Jonathan Haid, um, where he talks about specifically tribalism and that's something that we really didn't get a ton into, but <clears throat> the, this idea that, you know, the idea of, being part of a tribe, I think he, I think the term he uses is it binds and it blinds, mm. meaning that it, it ties a group of people together over a commonality, which is great and can be great. It's great to be a part of something. It's part, great to be part of a club. Or we
3: all want to belong. That's even part of you yeah. know the subtitle of this book.
0: Yeah, it's funny when you travel. Even I was laughing about this. Um, it, it's funny you get like kind of excited when you're, oh, you're American too, you know, like you, you're instantly buddies, you know, in this weird way, like when you're traveling abroad, especially in a country where like you, you're you not proficient with the language, it's almost like this instant connection. Um, So, you, you know, because you're part of this this club, you're part of this tribe, you're, yeah. you know, you identify as as Americans. Um, but it also blinds in the sense, you know, when, when it's unhealthy, where it, um, it it creates an us versus them. There's an other now. And I, I see a lot of that, unfortunately, with this issue of immigration. It's being
3: deeply exploited.
0: Yeah. And, and I think Karen uh, used the term demonize. And that's really what it comes down to, is they're this other group of people where, where we care less about them, despite the fact that we see these horrific images of kids being torn away from their parents or separated for long periods of time, are, are children missing in the system or, or in these cages, these lockups, um, these parents or are these families being split apart? God forbid that ever happened to any one of us. But we seem to care less because of perhaps the color of their skin or, you know, where they come from, what, what their background is. And it's just, you know, I, I think that's the thing that we need to bring awareness to. Very much so. So anywho. <laughs> Thank you for for stepping in.
3: Yeah, it was fun. I always enjoy being here.
0: Awesome. Well, we'll definitely have you back. Don't worry. Um, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. We always have a good time. So um, so everybody out there, thank you again for listening. Uh, thanks for hanging in there with us. We know we haven't had a ton of content out this year, but we promise we're still working, although at a very turtle-like pace. <laughs> um, we will We will definitely continue to have more content out. But thank you so much for those who support us on Patreon. Uh, those who follow us on social media and interact with us, it really does make our day um, when you guys reach out and um, let us know something that you liked or, or um, just want to say hi. Um, you can connect with us on social media through our website, www.thedeconstructionist.com. You can also listen to all of our uh, episodes are loaded up on there. Um, you know, Like I said, connect to us on social media. You can visit our web store um, if you want a sweet T-shirt that I will personally send to you. Um <laughs> But yeah, otherwise you can read our blog on there when we remember to update it, and uh, um, and you can see all of our previous guests. So thank you guys so much. Support the music on the show. I don't know who it is right now, but uh, trust me, it'll be in the show notes, and you'll hear it throughout the episode. So follow those links, follow them, uh, help support them as an artist, and uh, we appreciate you. And uh, if you haven't already, if you're on Spotify, follow our our playlist. Uh, we regularly update it with each of the artists that we use on each episode. So you can follow our playlist on there and uh, listen to all the deconstructionist-approved music. So with that being said, I guess that's all we got, Katie.
3: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> we have been your hosts.
3: I'm Katie Herdert.
0: And I'm John Williamson. Keep deconstructing.
2: If you're gay and over 85 And you fought for your whole life When God made you, you just messed up. If you've been raised a southern belle, born and bred for show and tell, but you lie down feeling never good enough, I'm so sorry for how it's been. We're broken artists with broken pens. We paint our pride. And call it truth I'm sorry no one explained Jesus to you If you've heard a knock on your front door but all that you found on the porch Was a pastor that just wanted to be right I want to pray to him But you're never sure he's listening Cause who could forgive What you did last night I'm so sorry For what you've heard We're broken poets With silly words We paint agendas We call it truth I'm sorry no one explained Jesus to you Oh, 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 can't you feel him in the mood? Oh, all oh, 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 he wants is you And I'm so sorry for all the wrongs we broken, sick Broken songs, you paint our pride and call it truth. I'm sorry no one explained Jesus to you. I'm sorry no one explained Jesus to you. I'm sorry no one explained Jesus to you.